Diane Enns is Professor of Philosophy at Toronto Metropolitan University, Canada, as well as the author of Thinking Through Loneliness, a lyrical and compassionate philosophy of loneliness. Throughout the book, Enns explores the ambiguities of being alone and argues that loneliness needs to be recognized as a political issue as much as a personal one. In part one of this episode, we break down the meaning of the book's title, the aspects of loneliness that became much more apparent during the pandemic, the changing role of the nuclear family, and much, much more. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Rebecca Morofsky. And I'm Wayman Cam, your other host. And today we're talking to Diane Enns, the author of Thinking Through Loneliness. We're very excited to have you on the show, Diane. Such a ubiquitous, unavoidable part of the human existence is loneliness. So we have a lot to talk about here. Welcome. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this subject. It's a pleasure. Just to kick off, why a book about loneliness? What is loneliness? Well, I have thought a lot about loneliness in oh the last decade or so. I've had several significant periods of my life uh, where I've experienced loneliness. My work always starts out with personal experience, or it tends to. So I was really motivated by my experience to try to understand what loneliness is. You know, what is that feeling that we feel when we're experiencing loneliness? What is the content of that suffering? So that's really what precipitated it. But of course, we're hearing about loneliness all the time now, right? And even before COVID, loneliness was becoming quite a public topic. So I investigate my own experience with a view to understanding the more collective experience of of loneliness. So that's really the motivation of the book. I simply wanted to understand what constitutes this experience and what are the causes and conditions of it. So for me, loneliness is something that you can't really understand just by thinking about personal experience. You really have to see it as a social problem. I wanted to investigate all of that. As to your question, what is loneliness? I define it quite concretely in my book as a desire, as an unfulfilled desire. So I use the term craving. I suggest that loneliness is like a hunger. And as a result, because it's an unfulfilled longing, it's a form of suffering and it's painful. Of course, people experience it on a spectrum, right? It could be really severe for one person and not so severe for another, depending on the conditions. But loneliness itself, I say, is is a desire. And the title Thinking Through is intriguing. And what do you mean by like thinking through loneliness in this context? I had a really hard time finding a title for this book, which is unusual for me because usually I think of a title and I stick with it. But this one was tough because now there's a lot of people writing on loneliness and all of these book titles have loneliness in the title or or lonely person or lonely something. So I, I really struggled with it. But the thinking through loneliness, there's a double meaning there that I, I wanted to capture. And so it's about thinking about loneliness, 
right? That's the one sense. I'm thinking through a topic. I'm analyzing it in a you know fairly sustained way. But then there's the other part of it, and that is that I'm thinking through the lens of someone who is lonely. So the lonely person has something to offer us, right? There are insights that we can get from within that experience of loneliness that we wouldn't otherwise have. So there's a double meaning there. And I like any title that has thinking in it. So I was <laughs> quite happy with, with this selection. But yes, I think that, that both of those meanings of thinking through loneliness are prominent in the, in the book. It really is a discussion about the experience of loneliness that attempts to invite others to think with me about this experience. Yeah, I mean, I think for thinking is definitely a word that any philosopher would love to <laughs> include in their title, of course, and yes. a, a, double, a double meaning as well. Mm -hmm. Just the idea that we really see loneliness as this um, as this negative experience, but that there's something else to be revealed while, I don't know, exploring this painful process, this deeply vulnerable process. Speaking of vulnerability, you already mentioned that you approached this from quite a personal vantage point because you've experienced loneliness in your own life. Why did you choose to, to approach this book using such a personal experiential tone? I'm tempted to say that I didn't choose it, that I'm sort of compelled to write in, in an experiential way uh, from personal experience. And I think my style is rather unique for academic philosopher. And I say that right off the bat, there are not very many philosophers who would do this, that, who would expose the kind of inner experiences that motivate us to pursue a particular topic. But I started this with my previous book, which was on love. And I, I have to say, to talk about love or to, to discuss philosophically love and loneliness, I can't do it in a dispassionate way. I can't treat these subjects as, as abstract concepts that you know we can engage in theoretical debates about. I, people do this, obviously, but I'm just not one of those people. When I experience something, and this is just personality, right? When I experience something, it's very important for me to understand it and analyze it. So it's hard to take that out of my treatment of a topic like loneliness. So it kind of happens. I'm someone who is very expressive. And so even though I, I have written work, published work that is more scholarly in the traditional sense, I'm finding it less and less easy to do that now. I, I, I think our motivations for writing something are really important and inescapable. So I want to be one of those authors, one of those writers who who does reveal the the underpinning of of ideas. And I think another way to answer this too is that I love to read personal accounts and especially of of some kind of you know very intense experience. So so it's something that I appreciate and hopefully someone appreciates that when reading my work. I don't really know, but hopefully, because experiences, I, I, I don't, I never feel afraid of being vulnerable to the public because my experience of loneliness has everything to do with everyone else's experience of loneliness. I think we have personal stories that are unique, 
But I also think that when it comes to an experience like this or like love, there are universal aspects to it. So when you read one person's account of loneliness or love or something like that, you may be able to identify with it. And that's always the hope that I'm not just talking about myself. I'm talking about universal experience and someone will be able to relate to it. Just to quickly interject here. Yeah, I mean, for me, it doesn't actually make sense to analyze things like love and and loneliness and sadness, these things that we feel so acutely and on such a personal level, it, it, I don't feel like it draws or paints an accurate picture of how these concepts manifest themselves in our world without understanding how, how they're felt. And I, I know, yeah, maybe it's difficult to then theorize a concept that is felt so subjectively, but I think it is part of the picture. So, and I think that's maybe the direction that a lot of academia is moving in, just this understanding that you can't divorce something so emotional and personal from how it affects us on a social societal level. Yes, I think you're probably right. There is more openness to this in in scholarly writing. I've just, yeah, I've never been one who can separate the theory from the experience. So that's probably unique to some of us, at least. But I think you're probably right. There's an opening. Well, perhaps academic writing in general is trying to be more for the public these days. So that could be part of it. I'm actually in the middle of like reading the book. and I'm really enjoying the style personally. I find it like illuminating that you've moved from obviously the personal then onto the theoretical. You talk about like, you know, obviously individual experiences are very subjective and there are, however, obviously like universal aspects of these experiences. And I was just wondering, you know, we are just coming through perhaps the pandemic. There was a lot of talk about people feeling extremely lonely and isolated. And I was wondering about what aspects of loneliness you thought became more prominent as a result of what's happened. That's an excellent question. I do think that that the pandemic has exacerbated all of the conditions that were already starting that cause loneliness. So, for example, think about all of these people imprisoned in their homes, basically, during lockdowns. The elderly people experienced the worst of it, I'm sure. And I think that's probably our best evidence of social failure is elderly people who are can't see anyone, aren't able to eat with anyone, are frail and perhaps really sick and stuck in their rooms, not able to see family members at a time in their life when that is really what the only thing that gives life meaning probably is seeing your loved ones. But families are completely dependent on each other. So the the social world completely shrinks into the household. People who live alone, lots of suffering there because there's all of the everyday care that you may experience in your community and your neighborhood is gone. So you, you are completely reliant on yourself alone. So I think those are you know, some of the worst aspects of this. But Also in the sense, in the more public sense, that loneliness, even before COVID, 
was was already showing that our our social is failing, right? Our the social fabric, and and when I say our, I think I mean you know European North American society. I don't want to speak for anyone else, but let's say for many of us, the social fabric of our world is unraveling, and it was before COVID, but COVID just made it so much worse because you are your 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 world has had to shrink. So for many of us, there was a complete, I guess for most of us, a complete separation between ourselves as isolated individuals and the world. And when you have no world, it isn't even just about missing your loved ones, missing your friends, your family members, your kids who might live somewhere else, but it's missing the corner store folks the people that you see at the post office or what have you, right? The, 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 your barista that you see every day, your world has shrunk really drastically. I think that's, yeah, that is the worst of what COVID has done. But in addition to that, we see the social erosion being exacerbated by what's happened in the last couple of years, right? We see a rise in anger and irritation, hostility, aggression, violence. There's talk of an increase in domestic violence. Certainly, you know, in various places, we're seeing a lot more gun violence. And so, so I think all of this fits together. It's not just one aspect of our lives that have changed. But I've talked to people who work in stores or cafes who say everyone is angry all the time and people are rude. So I think this has to do with that social breakdown that I was talking about that started even before COVID, but COVID's made it much worse, for sure. Yeah, I think you're completely right. I think that our social fabric was already crumbling in all these devastating ways, but the pandemic not only exacerbated it, but I think revealed how broken our social safety net was. Because once we needed these things to actually support People in hospitals, for instance, we realized that none of our systems were actually prepared to handle the level of care that people would need during this time. And, you know, I think that the other aspect here is that loneliness does have this this physical element to it. You know, my mom was, as you were talking about with the elder pair being one of the worst examples of this. My mother lives in in an independent care facility and she was locked down. I didn't see her for a year and a half. And I think a lot of people in her community ended up developing speech impediments and, Mm. you know, had a lot of deterioration in their cognitive function because of how lonely and isolated they were feeling. So I think that there's this other aspect of loneliness that we've all been experiencing, but maybe to such a heightened degree for people that are living in um, assisted living facilities. And not to mention, you brought up gun violence. I mean, we could go down so many paths here and talk about, you know, the lone wolf and that whole archetype and whatever. But One thing I really wanted to talk about was something that I've been reading a lot about is just the experience of parental loneliness. I've been reading Mm. a lot about how women, especially particularly in the workforce, have just been set back 20 years or so because of how they're supposed to juggle parenthood and their work. So 
And you talk a lot about single motherhood, particularly in your book. I was wondering if you could flesh out the idea of parental loneliness and whether you feel there is this gendered quality to the experience and Mm -hmm. how that has, in your eyes, gotten worse during the pandemic. I would want to emphasize again that the experience of loneliness, the content of it is the same. You know, it's it's, it's universal. I, I wouldn't say that there is this kind of loneliness or that kind of loneliness. But of course, the conditions vary. So I would say a parent could experience loneliness because they are a parent. And it would still be, you know, the same kind of suffering, the same kind of uh, longing for human companionship and, and togetherness. But it's because of the specific conditions that they're living under. And I wouldn't say that the experience itself is gendered. I think that a parent under COVID, whether single or not, could experience the same kind of loneliness, whether male or female. But of course, their circumstances might be very different. And so if women were stuck at home more under COVID than their male partners were, then of course, they would experience more loneliness because they don't get to share the responsibility. They don't get to share more adult companionship. They would be the ones who bear the burden of the responsibility of the children more. So that does go, relates to what I say in the book about being a single mother and the loneliness of the single mother, I say, is is unique. So in a way, I'm contradicting myself here. I, I, but But I think every... The, the loneliness is still desire, it's still suffering, but it can be experienced in different levels of intensity. So for me, in my experience, being lonely as a single mother had to do with not being able to share that responsibility with someone else. So a parent, either male or female, could experience that same kind of desperation for someone else to be there to take on this responsibility. I think parents in general, I mean, I, I have lots of friends who have young kids and I think the lockdowns were really, really devastating for families. Although at the same time, comparing them to people who live alone, they at least had companionship. They had they had a social unit, even if it was very small. But yeah, so I to go back to your question about the, whether it's gendered, I think that women could experience loneliness for different reasons. But I don't really think that the experience itself is gendered. I think that because desires are, you know, a, a desire can be experienced by anyone. Just the intensity of it and the conditions and the causes for it might vary. That is also what I'm getting at is just clearly the conditions for working mothers versus working fathers and just the expectations of being a parent in both of those gender roles, I think, very, very differently. So I was just curious if you also observed a stark contrast between the ways that they were experiencing this phenomena. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot to do with other sorts of experiences, other you know equity matters. And you're right, going back 20 years, which seems to be... <laughs> We seem to be continuing on this trend in all sorts of ways. But yeah, I hadn't thought of it before you asked this question. I hadn't thought about it in terms of loneliness. But I think it would completely depend on the situation, whether because a a partner could assuage someone's loneliness throughout COVID, right, throughout a lockdown situation. But yes, if you're at home with the kids 24-7, that could be an issue that concerns loneliness for sure. Speaking of families, I was just wondering about 
you know, you've already said that like individual like experiences of things like loneliness are so subjective. And I'm just wondering about like, you know, the concept of the 21st century concept of the nuclear family, usually like white, Western, cishet. I think that's what a lot of people like think of when it comes to you've got a family, you've got like central like social unit to look after or care for. But I was wondering how that particular concept of like a modern family functions in relation to either experiencing loneliness or how people think of loneliness, like, you know, as an experience. Well, the nuclear family, as we know it traditionally, is really declining, right? The numbers are declining. So it's no longer the norm. I don't know if I would even say that it's white, Western, heterosexual concept anymore, because families have really changed the way people live in families. But nevertheless, that nuclear family norm that was once is still the ideal. So we see it everywhere in our, you know, public world. We see this this promotion of family life as an ideal and it's nuclear family life that's promoted. And I think it's that ideal that can cause a lot of suffering. I mean, it can cause loneliness because anyone who has not achieved that ideal could be very lonely because they're struggling to achieve that ideal. And if they don't, for one reason or another, there's all of this disappointment and and that lack, that deprivation is not overcome. So the ideal itself, we really hang on to that ideal. In my view, this is really quite surprising that after all of these decades of, you know, divorce is normal now. No, No one really complains anymore that that our divorce rates are higher than they were in the 1950s and 60s. But despite that, despite that we all know that families can be extremely dysfunctional, despite statistics on violence against women, especially in the domestic sphere, we still hang on to this idea that family life is the best way to meet our social needs. And that has to change. But, but I think that, so the family as an ideal is a cause for loneliness. But also in the book, I really relied on on these British sociologists, actually, Mary McIntosh and Michelle Barrett, who wrote already in the 1980s, I think it was early 80s, book called The Antisocial Family. Their idea was that the family is actually an antisocial institution. If we look at it from the perspective of all those who are outside of families, because the family itself monopolizes care. So if you're without a family, you have no recourse to everyday care. So in a very concrete sense, we could say that the family contributes to loneliness as well, because especially if the family is in decline, there are a whole lot of us who don't have that nice social support built into our household. So there's that. But yeah, so I think both of those in the ideal sense and in the really practical sense, we could say that the family contributes to loneliness. And I know this is probably very controversial because people with families say, well, I'm not lonely because I have a family and a family is a a wonderful way to structure society in in 
structure our social existence. So I'm, I'm sure there will be people who really hate that chapter where I write about the antisocial family or the chapter I write about the, the tyranny of the couple, as I call it. I think that it just depends what perspective you come from. And, and of course, under COVID, we all saw how essential having a support network in your own home was. So in some ways, families were better off. In other ways, those families, yes, they were harmed by only having each other. It's certainly in my experience, not like necessarily a totally bad one, but as I'm getting older, and you might laugh because I'm only in my 30s, but like, you know, a lot of my friends have started like having kids now. And I love children, but it's like so noticeable. And like, you know, I know how much effort it takes to like keep a child alive. So obviously there's a lot of effort involved. Like suddenly all your focus is on this small, tiny human, but it's just so noticeable that like all of a sudden, you know, your friends are so much less available for at least like the first couple of years of life. And it's not that people don't make an effort, but obviously it's like the circumstances of like modern Western life you know, you start like a lot of people start moving away from each other. So that's like another thing, like you're all like in mm-hmm. houses where you're like in towns or far away from each other. So you're not like as connected, as close to each other as you would be where you would just like walk to, you know, hang out and play with the kids or whatever. Like I've certainly like noticed even in London where people are like busy, busy, busy. You have to like book in, you know, <laughs> going to see friends like months and months in advance now like I said, it's not something that I like begrudge my friends or anything, but it's just so noticeable that when people have children, all of a sudden that time you have for friendship is just so minimized. Yes, I absolutely agree with you. And what's really interesting to me is how few people are talking about this. It's not on our radar. And there are a number of people who I use in my book who write about singleness or there's a there's a new term called singlism nobody has really i don't see it anyway i don't see a lot of discussion about discrimination against singles or even just the fact that you know we we live in a in a world especially in in the west in our urban centers where many many more people are living alone than they used to. I mean, the numbers are rising. I remember reading some statistic about Sweden maybe had the most in Stockholm, for example, it was something like 50%, I think, in recent years, people living in single households. And not a lot of people are talking about this yet. And I think it's because of that family ideal, right? So, so everyone else, I mean, there is, I don't know about British society, but here there is still a stigma about being single. And there is still the expectation that if you're single, it's a temporary state and eventually you'll find someone, right? Doesn't everybody say that when you're single? Oh, you're going to, you'll meet the right person soon. So I think we're only beginning to talk about that kind of situation and, and the problems that arise when we value family over any other kind of relationship. And I think it has to do with being a priority for someone. If you're not a priority for someone, whether it's a friend, a partner, a family member, it doesn't matter who it is, but if you're not someone's priority, it's very difficult to have your social needs met. It's very difficult to, to be involved in some kind of care community, right? Because that's what the family is supposed to do. So yes, I sympathize. I mean, yes, it's wonderful when your friends have children and you can be involved in their lives. 
that is really one of the greatest experiences in life, I think, to be involved in a child's life. But because we live in urban centers where everyone is working all the time, the only leisure time is spent with the family or with a partner. So then friends get left out. I've thought about this a long, long time because I've been single for a long time now. And I usually just come down to the point that if a single person doesn't have single friends, they really are left with nothing to do on weekends, right? Or on days off because coupled friends or, or people with families, they don't usually have the time or inclination, I don't know, to spend time with friends who, who are single. It's a topic I rant about frequently. <laughs> Yeah, and I understand why. I mean, everything you were just talking about, it's so, you're right, it's still this massive ideal in our society. You just watch Sex in the City, and that's basically the whole plot of the show, of just feeling bad for single people until they find, you know, their yes. ideal partner. Whether that partner is actually kind of shitty, doesn't yeah. matter. And I understand why some people might take that chapter about the tyranny of the family and think it's controversial, but I think you're right that it. Well, at least that ideal, the nuclear family of just the mom, the dad, and the 2.5 children really monopolizes care and really diminishes the power of other kinds of relationships that we have, like Ming said, just like the relationships, the beauty of platonic love. I think we're finally starting to talk about how that can be just as powerful as, you know, a partner. And I think another thing that Ming was getting at with her comment was just that ideal, whether it actually exists or not, really does move us towards this deeply isolated state because it really juxtaposes like other familial designs. Like I think, you know, families that have multi-generational households or, you know, extend beyond just you know, the mom and the dad, but second and third cousins, right? Like, I think that those expansions of like, who actually fits into the family circle needs to be challenged a bit more. I don't know. I think basically what I'm trying to say is that we are redefining what family even means, whether it's because of capitalism and because none of us can actually afford a home on our own. I know plenty of people who are buying houses together, who are trying to raise children together, because especially in the U.S., parental leave is pretty much non-existent. So really, it does take a village to raise a child. And I think we're we're starting to appreciate that more and more. Yes. And I mean, households can be really variable. I have a gay couple who live in one house and then they have neighbors where there's two single mothers and a a small child. And my friends, the gay couple, they are like grandparents to this little girl and they consider her. I mean, she, they put in their, a doorbell in their house that's at her level so that she can ring the doorbell without, you know, stretching. They write messages to her on the outside of their walls with chalk. And and I just find, I love this example because I think this is really redefining, not necessarily a household. I mean, they have two households here, but redefining familial relationships. And I think you're probably right. And although I, I don't know where this will go, but I'm I'm hoping that we'll start to really reevaluate friendship and that friendship will no longer be second place to a coupled relationship. 
But we're still up against that incredible, the power of that ideal, right? And the ideal of marriage and family life. I mean, the wedding industry alone is enough to prevent us from really changing how we think about these relationships. so excited for you to read the books from all our amazing authors that we've talked to this season add thinking through loneliness to your cart on our website and enter code pod 35 followed by the country codes uk us au or ca depending on where you're located